0: Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's 4th February 2019. I am writer hyphen third man, Lee Zachariah and with me as always
1: is. Hello, I'm writer hyphen satire of a film critic with horror overtones, Rochelle Semenovic. And with us this week we have a special guest joining us for the entire show, that is drum roll.
2: Uh, hi, I'm David Caesar, I'm a director hyphen screenwriter hyphen teacher. Welcome, David. It's
0: uh, it's a pleasure to have you on board. I've been uh, I've been following you ever since uh, the the days of uh, Race Around the World. Oh my god! <laughs> never leave that town. <laughs> no, no. Like we said in the intro blog, uh, you basically pioneered the grumpy, mean judge thing. So you should be getting a lot of royalties from all these reality shows that have followed yeah. in your wake. Look, maybe,
2: but I just sort of felt like I, I, I mean, I gave, like I can just safely say I gave the highest scores as well as the lowest scores. Mm. So I wasn't grumpy about everything. I thought I was supposed to say it the way I saw it, but I think that was kind of like a bit silly on my part. i got a lot of grief over that. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: to the films of this month, and pro basketball is off the air in Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird Uh, The NBA is in the middle of a lockout, much like the real-life one that they experienced in 2011, with uh, players and execs fighting over cuts of the lucrative pie. One wily agent hatches a plan to outmaneuver the bigwigs and get him and his client paid. There's a lot at stake because, as Andre Holland's agent points out, football is fun, but don't sell sneakers. Guys, was this film a slam dunk for you, or did it strike out in the end zone of... Hang
1: on, I've mixed my sports metaphors. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Lee, I struggled with this one. I really? I can see it's cleverness. I can see um, that it's it's really innovative. But I, all that basketball talk was really baffling, and it it was a hard slog for me to get into it.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I found it incredibly talky, and yeah. uh, not in a good way.
1: Yeah, I
0: know what you mean. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of very talky films, and even though I don't really follow basketball at all. I don't mind those. I mean, the same is true of, you know, polit- oh, when, I, when I used to watch politics films and TV shows as a kid and didn't understand half what they were talking about, but just loved the the sort of intricacies of, of, of the shorthands, of all these words I didn't know, and just the rhythm of it. Um, I think I, I maybe had the same reaction with uh, with this film.
2: Yeah, well, I, I guess for me, though, I saw them... Uh, I saw an interview with Mr Soderbergh where he compared it, like, to Glen Garry, Glen Ross, and he talked about that being very stagey. And I thought, I mean, I love the film of Glen Garry, Glen Ross, and it's very—it's all talk and it's all jargon and it's all about the real estate business, uh, an industry that I could have even less interest in than basketball. Uh, but I just found the dialogue in this kind of like impenetrable, you know. Yeah. And uh, I just was like, uh, 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 and, and, like, this whole idea of, like, whether you, as a millionaire, whether or not you own, you know, like, that you have control over the basketball games you play in or not, like, do, do people really care about that? I'm just fascinated that anyone would care. <laughs> I, I just thought it was, like, like who cares who owns it? It's an entertainment conglomerate and it's a business. Like, the idea that there's some sort of relationship between the sort of energy of street basketball and, like, this national well, probably realistically international um, entertainment industry. I just thought, well, I don't know what the argument is, but then I'm not a huge sport fan on any level, so maybe I'm just missing it.
1: Well, a lot of people are talking about this as kind of, you know, the parallels between this industry and the filmmaking industry Mm, and the fact mm. that, you know, it's about controlling the game, whatever that game might be. Um, so, maybe on that level it's interesting. But in many ways, it's a very American centric film. It'd be mm. interesting to see how it's going to travel, you know? Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I did. I I, I got to say, I, I think it's going to work for me. Like, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's going to work for me better on the second viewing because I don't mm. really think I realized what type of film I was watching. That it was, it had an element of, of Ocean's Eleven to it, there was kind of a heist aspect. But you don't really know that you're watching you know somebody's trying to gain the system, but until everything sort of gels together, you go oh, that's what what I was watching. I'm gonna go back yeah. and watch it again and then yeah,
2: yeah, I struggled to know what the game was mm. I mean I was like <laughs> I, I, even by the end, I'm going, oh yeah, what you know like i I felt that, and I'm a fan of the oceans eleven films, so. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I, I just really struggled with those choices. They had, like, not to show the basketball and not to do that. I mean, like, I just would have felt it would have been more cinematic if they'd done that. I thought it was going to be like a sort of American sports film, which it's a genre I actually quite like, even though I don't know anything about sport. I just I love use... baseball
0: movies. I don't think I've ever watched a game of baseball in my life from start to finish, but I love baseball movies.
2: Yeah, look, Moneyball. I really liked, and mm-hmm. I don't know anything about. I, I can't imagine anything more torturous than watching a, a <laughs> baseball um, game itself. Well, actually, I can a cricket game, but <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I like I like American sports movies. It's a genre I really enjoy. But th- this kind of like was the sport without the sport, you know?
0: It, yeah, I know what you mean, and it, it, it's funny you you mentioned Moneyball because Soderbergh came very close to directing that. Mm. And he had all those
2: things. He'd done a great job on
0: that. He, Yeah, he, he, he would have done a brilliant job. Like, I quite like Moneyball, but um, I would have loved to have seen his version. But maybe mm. we sort of have, because there was a lot of stuff that he was going to do for that film. Like, the sort of those... Something that comes up in a lot of his films, or at least some of them, where they're intercutting with interviews with sort of real-life yeah. people. And, and that was yeah, what I he like... planned to do for Moneyball, and he got to do that here.
2: That was my favourite aspect of this film, actually. mm. I mean, like, just seeing these sort of like working class, mostly um, uh, black American guys talking about their experience, I I found that kind of engaging. I found that stuff the most engaging aspect.
1: I mean, a lot's been made of the fact that this film was shot on an iPhone. What do we think about the look of it?
2: I I love it. I love, I mean,
0: I love Soderbergh's sort of unpretentious this should look ugly but it's somehow i don't know for me at least it really it always draws me in there's a really sort of first person view to it that that really makes me feel like i'm in i'm inside his films in a way that doesn't happen with a lot of other filmmakers who try similar styles so yeah i, I was i was really into it
2: i i really like the iphone aesthetic I mean, it really reminds me of sort of a a style of filmmaking, which uh, this type of technology called Reversal from back in the day, which has kind of a really almost aglow quality and it's got a really high contrast aesthetic to it. I I really enjoy that. I mean, I I, I wasn't entirely as sold on why this was shot on an iPhone compared to, say, Unsane or or, mm. or tangerine, which really the actual technology seemed to really s- suit the subject matter, mm. but I thought it, i thought but that being said, I thought the aesthetic was great, and i 've mm. since read a lot of uh, stuff of him talking about why he shoots that way mm. and then just being able to go down the streets in New York with five people and, and 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 just be able to shoot wherever you want and I know in Sydney for a fact that to shoot in Sydney, you don't need permission to shoot in Sydney if you're using a, a phone. Right. Like the law says that, whereas if you were to use a professional camera, it's against the law to do it without permission from and getting all the permits. Hmm. So I suspect that's another great reason why you do it because it just gives you all that freedom.
0: Right. I, mm. I, I think the if there's a you know, a motivation for using the iPhone in this film. I think it's mm. the aesthetic of so much of this film revolves around some kids film something on their phone and it gets uploaded yeah. and changes. Yeah, everything. Yeah. And I feel like he's sort of capturing that. Like, what if I film this, you know, I, th- I think there, I don't think he, he did it because of the story motivation because he's so captivated yeah, yeah. by the method, but I think, I think it is there, but yeah. Yeah.
2: But I, th- I think as well, the other thing that from my point of view is that as a person who. Occasionally make stuff. Yeah. There's something about the whole, um, Kind of like the circus comes to town aspect of filmmaking, which is really daunting for like especially inexperienced performers mm. and if it's kind of you sitting there with an iPhone and you have a relationship with the um, performers, there's an intimacy there that and trust that that is really great compared to sort of having forty people and a hundred lights and all this equipment sort of like bearing down on you like yeah. this sort of oppressive wave of technology
1: right yeah we'll probably sort of swing back to some of this stuff in our um, segment but um let's move on to our next film which is on the basis of sex which is based on the true story of the early career of trailblazing lawyer and future supreme court justice ruth bader ginsburg she's played here by felicity collins Army Hammer plays her devoted husband Marty, a brilliant tax lawyer in his own right, who supports her and teams up with her to bring a groundbreaking case before the U.S. Court of Appeals and thus overturn a century of gender discrimination. Following on from last year's documentary RBG, which we covered on the show, On the Basis of Sex is written by newcomer Daniel Steepelman and directed by Mimi Leder, who did The Peacemaker and Deep Impact. Lee and David, did you find this courtroom biopic inspiring or by the numbers?
2: Yes. <laughs> I, I have, I'm, I'm right on with that with you, Lee. Yes. Yep.
0: Yeah, I, I, there's a great quote in the film, which is uh, uh, the weather of the day doesn't dictate the climate of the era. And i got to say, I have railed on this podcast and in other places, I've railed against biopics that are just Wikipedia entries that hit familiar beats and sort of tie themselves to a pre-established narrative and, you know, alter facts to make for a more pleasing experience. And mm. and when I went and saw this film, that was exactly what I was in the mood for. And I don't know why. And I'm very changeable. I know this is entirely unfair and inconsistent and I don't care. And it could partly be because RBG uh, was the documentary that sort of hit the factual points I wanted to cover. That was the meat I needed and now I was in the mood for some over-sweetened confectionery and that's that's kind of what this film is.
2: Yeah, I, I found it kind of a bit pre-chewed, mm. you know? Like I didn't have to sort of put any effort into it. I, I I kind of found it all a little too sort of by the numbers and I, and I was really struggling with the casting. Right. Really? I, yeah, I found her like like a I don't know, a year twelve private school girl on the debating team, you know? Like I just didn't feel she had any gravitas and I and I've seen all the stuff with the you know, the the real subject and she oozes gravitas. Mm. And I just felt um Yeah, I felt the casting was kind of odd. She looked like she was about 16 to me for the whole film, and I (laughs) thought that was problematic, you know, because she already had a child uh, at the beginning of the film, So, uh, and I'm assuming that she wasn't a teenager when she went to Harvard. So I I don't know. I found that kind of odd, odd casting.
1: I think she was very young and pretty um, when she started out her career and I think she was like 21 when she right, got married right. or whatever. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, probably a lot of people found her like the, the girl on the debating team when she first started out. And Maybe one of the so. things yeah. I really enjoyed here was seeing her struggle with the, that performance aspect of being a lawyer in a courtroom mm. and having mm. to rehearse that because you so often, you know, see lawyers in – movies who just go in and are just awesome to yeah. begin with you know mm. yeah, and yeah. here it showed the, the work involved for her to do that because it didn't come naturally I, did. yeah, I
2: yeah i guess so i mean i guess there's that it's sort of the thing that summed it up for me was the moment when she goes to the microphone in the supreme court and it does that weird feedback loop <laughs> thing <Yeah>. which <laughs> just isn't real that just doesn't happen. It was like, oh, now we're saying that. Now she's nervous. Now she's this. Now she's that. And 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 I I, I think she would have been nervous to an extent, but she'd been a um at that point she'd been a uh, a university professor for like fifteen years, like being yeah. standing up in front of like classes of people and everything else. And so she's and she would have been like at that point supposedly forty or so, I guess. So yeah. I just sort of had a I'm thinking. It, Mm. Anyway, I just yeah. struggled with it. And it kept on defaulting to a husband all the time. Like, he came up with the idea for the case in the beginning, you know, all that. And that may well be true, so I don't know. But I, I thought that was kind of odd in terms of the Yeah, the, he, he the, was the more subject. proactive
0: than he seemed in the documentary. Like, he was the very supportive guy behind the scenes in the documentary and then in the film. Mm. And and again, you know, maybe, maybe the... the, the this film is more accurate
2: in, in terms mm. of what happened. Well, it was written by her nephew. There you go, yeah. Yeah, um, Daniel Stiekelman's her nephew. Mm.
1: Uh, the... Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, right. It
0: does, mm. I mean, it, it really does feel like these are a complex, intelligent characters in a film that isn't as complex. So it's this kind of weird dichotomy of styles. And I, yeah. I often wonder... What these characters would think of the film that they were in because it sort of seemed a bit too simplistic for them but there was um there's an excellent podcast called more perfect about the u.s supreme court that one of the episodes describes the events of this film um and as much as i roll my eyes when a reviewer says don't watch this film listen to this weird obscure podcast i like but it is (laughs) it is really good and um even on an entertaining basis i think the the podcast probably told in a more entertaining way. I'll, I'll pop the link yeah. in the show notes, but, um, look, anything cool. that, the film is fine. Anything that boosts RBG and sort of inspires people and educates them about
1: her, I'm, you know, I'm fine with. Sure. Well, you know, absolutely. like someone said that this was, had a lot of ham and cheese in it, this film. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes a really good ham and cheese sandwich is what I feel like. So <sighs> I quite enjoyed it, but I, I did find the cameo by the real, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the end kind of cringy. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I thought that was a misjudgment. I wasn't sometimes. sure how I felt about that.
2: Yeah, well, there's someone, I, I read another review of it, where they talked about the echo of her sh- shot of her shoes when she goes in the opening scene, when she go, first mm. goes to Harvard. Mm. And, and I was like, and how that powerful it was when you go back to her shoes going up the steps of the uh, US Supreme Court. And I went, oh, yeah, that sounds, sounds great. But like it didn't affect me like that at all when I watched it. Yeah. You know? It just felt oh okay. That's great in theory, but and it probably read great in the script, but it yeah, yeah. it didn't play it didn't pay out for me in, in the film mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Alright,
0: all well I guess yeah, we'll just keep covering Ruth Bader Ginsburg films on the show as long as they keep making them.
2: <laughs> well <laughs> it seemed like it was part one of a of a whole franchise.
0: Yeah, it could be could be like the Elizabeth films, like we'll get R.B.G., yes. the Golden Age. Um, well, she's
1: kind of a, a superhero for feminists now, and it's no wonder they gave her army hammer for a husband because, yeah. like, what, what better romantic um, co-partner could you possibly have?
2: <laughs> Can I say though? I saw a picture of him because I looked it up because I said, well, they couldn't have been that good-looking, mm. and he was. Yeah. Was he? Good-looking, yeah. Mm. I was surprised.
1: Lucky Ruth.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, to Velvet Buzzsaw now. Uh, and a gallery assistant is desperate to make her name in the high end art world and chances upon the terrifying but captivating artwork of a recently deceased neighbour. But something's not right about the art, and hideous fates before those who greedily consume the works by this exciting new, if dead, artist. Now, was this a work of art for you guys or did it hit a home mm-hmm. run in the seventh inning? Of, I'm sorry, I'm still on the American sports thing. I, I, I can't get <laughs> off
2: um, Well, for me, Nightcrawler was, is literally one of my favourite films from the last few years. I thought it was like, in terms of the subtext and everything else, really fantastic. Mm. But I, I just thought this was like an example of, uh, I think, what I see is a really big problem with a lot of Netflix things in that it feels like someone says, you could, here's all this money, do whatever you want. And it just didn't, it felt like it needs someone to say, hang on a minute, this needs more work, this needs more thought, this needs, I don't know, it just really didn't work for me. I really yes. struggled to get through it. Yeah, okay. really struggled. Yeah. I
1: had a lot of fun with it. I thought yeah. it was just very kind of trashy but delicious and, Mm. uh, you know, as I think about it now in retrospect, I'm not sure whether it really had anything very significant to say but just watching these characters and this world that was created with such, I don't know, detail and colour and over-the-topness. I mean, um, Jake Gyllenhaal was great as this sort of art critic and um, what's her name, Uh, Renee Russo. Mm. It It was really lovely to see her as this punk Artist turned, you know, cynical gallerist. I just loved being in this world and I didn't really care when the characters sort of got chewed up by the art, no spoiler alerts there, Um, because they were just, they were cartoonish. Yeah. Mm. Whereas Nightcrawler, I admit, is a much more serious and, um, you know, it's a film that makes, that is deeply disturbing. Whereas I don't think anyone's going to be disturbed by this.
2: But mm. can I just say that I think, though, that uh, this film doesn't play by the rules. It sets up at the beginning. In this sort of narrative, usually you go, these people humiliated that artist or they did this to him or they undermined his career or whatever. Like, no-one even knew him as a character. Mm. So there wasn't, like, a ghost figure that was repaying an unjust transgression that's happened to them in life. It was just, like, these people who are, like, not good people dying. That's actually kind
0: of what I liked about it because I've always been yeah. slightly uncomfortable with the sort of the the morality from on high uh, a sense of of horror films and and how that seems to be ubiquitous across the genre. This just felt like there are rules we don't necessarily know what they are. People are going to be punished no matter what, and like it was really. I don't know. It felt like David Lynch directing Final Destination. It was kind of like it was high art and low art at the same time, and mm. it had those sort of fun slasher deaths. But there's something I felt there was something quite profound going on, even if I didn't always know what it was. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it was just. I, I look. I, I had a really great time with it. It had this really strange discordant energy that, that just worked for me. And mm. yeah, I don't know. And I love. I love. Jake Gyllenhaal's art critic um, i'm always a little suspect when an art critic appears in a film because it's usually <laughs> a filmmaker having a bit of revenge and we you know we often deserve it but it's it's still something unpleasant about seeing someone exercise you know demons but this film is i think a Rorschach test you you know you could be watching a film that damns critics or damns artists or praises the power of art or does all of those things or says money ruins mm. art or art ruins people. You know, it really gives you enough to sort of read into it anything you want, which I is, is the, the point of art, I think. Mm.
1: Mm. It doesn't sort of distinguish between good art and bad art, mm. um, which is perhaps a problem with it. All art seems to just take revenge on the characters. Um, yeah. It, yeah, I've got to say... A special call out to the fashion in this film because the costuming was just so perfect. It was just ridiculous. Um, you know, I thought the the things like that. Tony Collette plays this plays this pretentious kind of art buyer, and she wears these ridiculous outfits that are in no way attractive. But you'd have to be in the know in the art world to know what they meant. And yeah, I think there are just a lot of details in this film which are quite sort of um, I don't know, clever and interesting. Mm. And cool. Zoe Ashton, the, I think she's a British actress. Um, she plays the young art dealer um, who's dating Jake Gyllenhaal at one stage. Um, she's she's just a very good performer. I really yeah, liked her. She's name.
0: great. I remembered her from Sherlock. She plays one of the uh, sort of police officers who rolls their eyes at Sherlock uh, in the, the Benedict uh. Cumberbatch version. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I recognise her. <laughs>
1: uh moving from the uh ridiculous to the sublime i think our next film is if bill street could talk barry jenkins follow-up to his oscar-winning moonlight if bill street could talk is based on james baldwin's novel of the same name the story is set in early 70s harlem and told in flashback where 19 year old tish newcomer kiki lane is deeply in love with her childhood sweetheart, a carpenter and artist, Fonny, Stephen James. They're preparing to marry and have a family, but their plans are derailed when Fonny is arrested for a crime he didn't commit. Pregnant and desperate to be reunited with him, Kiki and her close-knit family try to seek justice. Lee and David, were you as swept off by your feet uh, as I was by this swooningly romantic story?
0: Uh, Yeah, this is probably my favourite film of the year so far. I know we're only two months into the year, but um, yeah, I I love it. I don't think there's a more elegant filmmaker working at the moment than Barry Jenkins. This is just... Yeah, this this one really hit me hard.
2: I'm going to have to say I just didn't get it. Ah, But then again, I'm I'm not a fan of Moonlight either, you know. I know you're supposed to. I know the rules are that you're supposed to like Moonlight. But I just don't engage with his stuff at all. I just feel like it's outside looking in and I felt like the supporting characters are always more interesting than his main characters.
1: His yeah. main characters
2: feel like they're these sort of ciphers, these saints. And I just go, what? I don't know. I just don't engage. And, and I find like the, the aesthetics of it kind of like don't relate to the subject matter. I think it's kind of, isn't this beautiful? I'm like, why is it beautiful? I mean, like, why is it beautiful for those characters? Why would it be beautiful? And don't get me wrong, I think the cinematography and the, and the wardrobe and everything else is fantastic. And I kind of admire it. I mean, I think the direction's kind of good. But, like, at the end of the day, I had no idea what it was about.
1: Hmm. Really? See, so yeah. I'm with you on Moonlight. I, I was not as enamoured by that film as so many others were. I found that, oh, it was yeah i felt distanced by it i didn't feel, feel drawn in by it but the love story in this film totally captivated me i thought it was giving sort of it was giving attention and dignity and um kind of time to these two ordinary young black people falling in love and showing mm. what a transcendent human experience it is to be in love and then also you know counterpointing that with with the justice, the injustices of, mm. of racism and making it into a, a story that's kind of both really personal and really political. I, th- mm. I thought it was a much better and more interesting film than Moonlight. I, uh, I, I loved I love Moonlight, but I,
0: I, I think it maybe stopped being, stopped short of being a personal favourite because I sort of came to it a bit too late and the weight of everyone lauding it weighs Mm. on me no matter what film I see.
1: Uh, Yeah, it can ruin it, can't it? I
0: may have come to this a bit, like, just in time because it it kind of felt like more of discovery for me. But I just, I mean, I think think the beauty of the film works because it's, you know, the the, the cinematography is incredible. The music is just extraordinary. And Mm. I I feel like that's, like, the ugliness of the world that, that they may live in where they are being oppressed by, you know, corrupt cops and racist landlords is they're still the beauty comes through when they're together and, and sort of, they're not untouchable, but it kind of feels like they're in this protective bubble of, of, you know, love that, and that's what we're seeing. And and that makes the brutality of their situation, you know, so, so much more intense. Um, Mm. I never, I never noticed costumes. I got to say most of the time, but this film, something about just in the first 10 minutes, I was, I was so struck by the way, she's wearing, I think, yellow over blue and he's wearing blue over yellow. Oh, yeah. And it's this yeah. very distinct thing. And then in the very next scene, she's telling him she's pregnant and she's wearing green. And I just love that kind of, you know, storytelling through costume. They're, they're blended together. They're, they they complemented each other and now they're one. And, and you know, just, just that attention to detail. And mm-hmm. every, yeah, I, I, I loved every part of this film, I think.
1: mm yeah, I mean it's a heartbreaking film because, yeah. I mean a lot of people don't want to see it because they they they're scared of how it's going to make them feel bad about yeah. racism. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's a film that that leaves you up or down?
0: I felt quite up by the end of it. Um, hmm. just I mean just because I'd had this, you know, incredible experience with it, and it it doesn't have that brute brutality of you know. And now in the final final moments, we'll twist the knife so you feel something, which which can be effective and can be quite cynical, uh, depending on who's who's doing it. And, and, you know, he resisted that urge, I think. And so, I, you know, you don't come away thinking, well, that, that problem's solved forever. These people will be fine. You know, you know the problem lingers, but, you, you know, I didn't come away feeling like I wanted to, you know, throw myself off a bridge.
1: Mm, That's good. I mean, we don't want you to call it for No, no, like a roof or something. Tony.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't. I, I have to admit, I, I, because I wasn't that engaged with it, and, and like I was much more engaged, like, say, whenever the mother was on the scene. Um, yeah. You know, like when she was going to Puerto Rico and stuff, I just found that stuff riveting and, like, incredibly well put together and incredibly well written. I mean, I felt, the, I felt the scenario was kind of, like, real. The perfectness of these sort of, like, early 20s or she's 19 and he's 21 or something, I kind of just didn't, I thought that they were kind of, like, imaginary. I didn't, I thought it was like a fairy tale, their relationship. And, and and so i mean I, I suspect that was on purpose and i found some of the dialogue just really on the nose between them and then whenever the parents were involved particularly the father and the way that scene was structured when they tell say that she's pregnant uh and the way that relationship with the father of the Guy and the mother of the guy worked out. I just sort of that was kind of like fascinating and riveting and mm. unexpected and real and mm. tangible. And then when they, they were being beautiful, the young couple were being beautiful, you know, impossibly beautiful and impossible. I mean, I, I just didn't engage with it. um so by the end, it was like, oh, okay. I mean, I'm, like I say, I admired it, but I just didn't feel engaged. Right.
1: <laughs> it's good to have different points of view because this this film is almost universally lauded and applauded yes. and mm. acclaimed, yeah. and it's good to it's good to hear from people that it didn't click with because there are going to be those people. Yep. Yeah. Well,
2: True. I think there might yeah, it might be a few. <laughs>
0: It feels like we've talked about the impact of Netflix and streaming services a lot on this show, but we've only talked about it five times. So let's make it (laughs) six, because as you've heard, we've just talked about Soderbergh's High Flying Bird and Soderbergh's been out giving lots of fascinating interviews about filmmaking and distribution and, and experimenting with that and what the future might be. In talking about theatrical versus streaming, in talking about how to bypass the publicity machine and ensure people can see your film without having to spend millions of dollars on publicity, got me thinking, is this just a unique position that he is in? Is this just a a world that works for filmmakers like Steven Soderbergh, who make a certain type of film for a certain type of audience? Or is this something that can be applied widely? Is this something that could perhaps... Work for Australian filmmakers who do struggle to get films in cinemas, struggle to get them in front of audiences. Luckily, we have an Australian filmmaker with us, David. Uh, you've you've been reading a lot of of these uh, of these Soderbergh interviews. Yeah. What do you think about his uh, approach to Netflix and to this this new model of of film distribution?
2: Uh, I've been fascinated by him as a director kind of from sex lives and videotape days I mean we're similar age and it's just really interesting it's been his career I've been quite fascinated by like I' following it and and I'm kind of of most filmmakers in the world that's the kind of career that I actually wanted that ability to sort of play with the big boys but also to do much more personal and intimate work mm. Um and I think it's been really interesting watching his attempts to sort of like reinvent the the distribution game himself with theatrical films, but also playing in streaming with the Nick, and um, but but then uh, doing this sort of Netflix stuff. I mean, the thing for me, and this is kind of my Presbyterian pragmatic background, is that I can't see how Netflix as a model is sustainable. Mm you know like they they keep borrowing like literally billions of dollars to fund the stuff they're making and they they they're over 10 billion dollars in debt yeah and they they can't they are basically the their subscriber base can't get bigger
0: mm.
2: especially mm-hmm. in in places like australia and america and europe so i don't really know how they can kind of subscribe their way out of that debt i mean i think it's I think, I hope they do because I really find this as a filmmaker, the possibility of streaming as a way to sort of like generate revenue for, for, for um, product. I mean, there was a film uh, a couple of years ago, an Australian film called Wormwood mm. that came out and, and like no one could see it. And the only way people could see it was by pirating it, you know, and it's a real problem that, that you know, that people want to, I think people want to see Australian stuff But I think it's really hard to monetize it. And the model, the Netflix model, here's all the money, we buy you out up front, is a model that I think would work for Australian films in a way that it wouldn't work. It would work even better for Australian stuff in a way than it would in American films because if you have a breakout film in America, you can make a lot of money. But a breakout film in Australia, if you're really lucky, might break even.
0: Right, okay, I was gonna. I, I was hoping you'd say that because that was sort of the, the the conclusion I'd arrived at looking at the sort of budgets that he had for High Flying Bird mm-hmm. and for Unsane, the last film he shot on an iPhone, even though that that didn't go to streaming. It's roughly mm-hmm. the same budget you've had for things like Dirty Deeds. I know it's you know adjusted for inflation and so on. If you're able to make a film like this and bypass distributors and not have to worry about just getting people packing people into yeah. cinemas when there's so much else out there if it mm. just instantly arrives in their bedroom and you've got just enough of a campaign to make them aware that this free thing is now sitting in their on their TV when they get home, you know, that, yeah. that could greatly increase the number of eyeballs on, on your film.
2: I mean, I just generally believe, you know, like the model for me, the main model for me has been I want more people to see what I've done. Mm. You know, like that is the point. You make it, you want people to see it. I mean, the reality is that, you can't stream Dirty Deeds. You can't stream pretty much any of my films. Mm. I mean, the only thing I think uh, itty boxes on SBS, and that's it. What
1: um, about Ozflix? Are any of them on Ozflix?
2: Well, that's, like you've them. got it. Well, I mean, they could, they could get be on Ozflix, Oz but I've got to get them remastered, and that's mm. going to cost tens of thousands of dollars that I li- I just don't have. Yeah. Mm. And there isn't isn't that sort of industry infrastructure. And if some of them ended up being, um, you know, like a, the screen uh, archive. Um, the, if they decide that they want to do that one of those restorations, which they have been doing, then that'd be great. But uh, none of my stuff exists in HD, so uh, the, doing that tr- retransferring it is, you know, a lot of money that just mm-hmm. is hard for most independent directors in Australia or who tend to own their own work um, to do. So it's a it's a real it is a problem. I think. I mean, though, I do think that you know, like, it is starting to become less of a problem. And, and I, I do think the only way it's going to really work is if the government creates a quota system.
0: Hmm. I was going you to bring know, that up
2: because that's worked for TV. On. Yeah, local content norms. Yeah, yeah, and, and look, it, it's really worked for, um, in relationship to Foxtel. I mean, I, I did a mini-series for Foxtel that I um, co-created, co-wrote and co-directed about 10 years ago. Uh, and it was, like, one of my favourite things I've ever done. Um and
1: Which it, one was that,
2: David? It was called Dangerous. Oh yeah. It was about so, kids doing ram raids in Western suburbs with uh, Joel Edgerton and uh, Brooks Atwell in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm really a really big fan of that, but I don't know how people would see that. I mean, it's not on a uh, Foxtel on demand. But anyway, um, the thing is that the but that is, uh, but that I know know that Foxtel makes as much drama as they do because they have to, because the um, there is a percentage of their um, profit, they have to spend back into Australian production, and they've made some interesting stuff, I think, in the last few years. Uh, like, uh, you know, through through Foxtel and, and BBC, the Kettering incident and some other stuff. So I think there is it is a is a possibility of a model, and I think oh, I actually think it's our only hope, really, right. is that if there is that quite a system, you know.
1: Well, at, at the moment, the streaming services are. Um, kind of investing in some Australian content and saying, please don't give us quotas because we'll do it yeah. off our own back. But we just don't know if that's going to actually cut the mustard in the long run. Yeah, I look,
2: I think I, I think it's become like a, a real selling point for someone like Stan. I mean, like I think No Activity was a great series. They've done some other really great things, I think, at, at Stan. But I think that that's kind of their selling point. As far as I know, there's only been one show that um, Netflix have done.
1: That's the lands. Sure. Um, and and
2: yeah. I have to say it was a bit of a shocker. Um, okay. But, um, but um, but I, yeah, and I think that was to put off um, the the trying, the legislation, see, we're doing it off our own bat. But I actually think that part of it's about critical mass, you know, like it's, you know, people often go, Australian TV's not this, it's not that. And with free-to-wear TV, for example, it's, it's, you have to try and get as many eyeballs, so it tends to be never really pushing the limits. Uh, and I think there's possibility with um, Netflix or whatever to do stuff that's more interesting just because you're going for a more niche market. Hopefully, if a government would get a government that actually cares about Australian culture, um, I think that's a definite possibility.
0: Do you have... So for that day when government passes... The minimum quotas legislation. Netflix goes okay. Well, now we're required to. Here's a big pot of money. Come out as Australian filmmakers. Do you have a project ready for that day?
2: I have plenty of projects ready. I mean, like I. I I mean, like I'm out talking to like a standard thing that most um, producers. I've got like I'm always writing stuff. Uh, I've written a few things like a sort of a done a sort of a Richard the Third meets Mad Max. Uh, film that I've written that I really like but like I talk to most producers in Australia and they go look I don't know where this fits in the Australian landscape it's a sort of thing that would be good for Netflix but they wouldn't they're not offering money the beaches, so yes. yeah so it's it's kind of like a it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing it's like who's going to go first if you know what i mean and i think the model can work and and, and i I would go back to what we we're talking about earlier about the whole um, the model of the Soderbergh model, if you were out making films in Australia using the sort of uh, uh, crew size and stuff that he uses on those projects, I mean, I think you could easily be making stuff of an equally high production value for less than a million bucks.
1: Mm. And I think,
2: you know, without having to have all the trucks and all the parking and all the people to service the trucks and then people to service the people who are servicing the trucks, which is this sort of weird catch 22 part of the process. I think a lot of Australia, we could be producing a lot of stuff in Australia with that sort of aesthetic. And I think that, you know, like the aesthetic of his films in particular has been absolutely up there. I mean, I don't look at it and go, Oh, that that's unwatchable or anything. Mm. Uh, or distracting. And I think that we have to have a kind of a rethink the scale of production as well as, you know, look at it from both ends, the actual cost in relationship to uh, the actual production as well. All
0: right, David, let us know who have you picked for your Hell is for it's a Filmmaker of the Month?
2: I've picked a French filmmaker uh, called Bruno Dumont. And uh, he's a guy that's been around for about 23 years. I think he made his first feature in 1996. And um, I have to admit, I wasn't very familiar with his work until about four years ago. Um, And I suspect that if I had been familiar with it, I probably would have avoided it. Okay. Um, because i'm not a fan of french miserabilism
0: which, which which country's miserabilism are you a fan of
2: uh, pretty much none okay you know i just sort of think that kind of like everything is bad it's all bad it's all bad and just because it's in french it's not better
1: so which so, was the film that you came to him with that well, the one that actually you know made you interested in him
2: well, the thing, the film that, the, well, you know, it's debatable whether it's film, but it has been presented in a lot of places um, as uh, a film, is uh, Little Queen Queen.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a I miniseries,
2: saw, yeah. I saw that as a miniseries, and it blew me away, I have to say. And then I went back to finding a lot of his work, and, the, and, and, another, and then I w- went back just sort of incrementally, And I saw a film of his called Outside Satan from Mm. uh, 2009, which I really liked as well. But the further back um, I go with his work, the more I struggle with it.
1: (laughs) I'm so relieved to hear you say (laughs) that because I really struggle with some of these.
2: Yeah, I think his early stuff is like hitting yourself on the head with a hammer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Life of Jesus. Let's talk about that one.
2: Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, that's his The Life of Jesus is his first film. And I, I look, I absolutely get, I mean, having read a lot of stuff, about, a lot of interviews with him, I, I find his idea about the nature of life and the nature of art, and the idea that I think he, he said a lot of things about the nature of what filmmaking is, which is really interesting, I think. And, and it's quite fascinating, yeah. but I do find that his the brutalist nature of his work, particularly his early work, which is not leavened by much light humor. or hope or humour yeah. or anything else, really hard to get through. Yeah. And I, I and I kind of get that he's got kind of like a, a moral position on the nature of life, and the, and I, I find his kind of idea of like people trying to, his, like, I think a core theme of his work is people trying to find meaning Mm -hmm. is, is really, really interesting and really fascinating. But I do find that when it's kind of got other genre elements associated to it, it's much more engaging (laughs) and much more. I,
0: I, I agree. And I inadvertently came to him the same way you did, because for some reason uh, not realizing that Little Quinquin had been released as a film in some places, I was like, "Oh well, I might start with his TV shows and then sort of do his films."
2: Yeah.
0: So I watched Little Quinquin, loved it. Watched all of his films and then watched uh, Coin Coin, which is the the follow up yeah. to yeah. Quinquin, which we'll, we'll come to yeah. later. Yeah. But yeah, I, I thought Quinquin was fantastic. Watched the Life of Jesus, and I'm usually I've usually got a pretty high tolerance for these miserable films. But between that and Le Humanity um i just uh oh god i was just having the worst time i just found these yeah. films such a miserable slog and really repetitive yeah. like really like yeah. okay we're in a small town in the north of france everyone's a racist all the sex scenes are really ugly uh Parucal, there's always yeah. a mysterious vehicle uh, driving randomly in town too. yeah
2: very yeah. explicit uh and and to the point and and and, the, and there's kind of this kind of I think there's kind of a, he has a philosophical view that we're kind of like humans. Uh, the humans are just animals mm. who have sort of raised above their station and that they think they're more than what they are, but they're really just sort of rutting uh, primal things and that are looking for meaning when there's no meaning to be found. And I find that kind of fascinating. Mm. But then when it's just presented as there's, without hope, or without joy or without pleasure, I just think it's just like sl- slit your wrist stuff. I just don't know what the point of saying that in the world is as an artist, mm. and I'm just not sure what he's sort of saying. Is like, so his stuff's all about emotion and suffering and death and 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 brutal, brutal kind of. Lack of connection between people, and I think that's interesting. I mean, I thought there was stuff in La Life Humanity* that I thought was kind of really fascinating. I thought the, when when the main character starts levitating in his yeah. veggie pants, I thought, oh, that gave me some something. And 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 also found this sort of weird intimacy in that film that was just really out of context. You know, when he kisses the pedophile, or he yeah. sort of has that really intimate moment with the pig, and I don't mean in any sexual way. Yes. Uh, <laughs> But I thought that was kind of like, oh, this is interesting, now it's going to go somewhere. And then it just went back into this sort of dark, and I'm like, oh. Well, I
0: I almost feel like he looked at films that are successful and it's like, oh, they're really bleak and boring and nothing happens, and then every so often there's a bit where somebody floats and everyone goes, oh, that's brilliant because that's so, Mm. you know, such a different. And I felt a real cynicism. It, like, and maybe that was just my frustration bearing that out. But I... I, I didn't buy it. I didn't buy so. it in those early films. And also, like, you know, the, the first scene basically, you know, puts a cop onto this case where, you know, a little girl has been raped and murdered and you've got to solve the crime. And as soon as that happens, we spend the next 45 minutes as he goes off with his neighbor and his neighbor's boyfriend on a seaside holiday and nothing happens. And I'm just watching this mm. going, what, what point are you trying to make? Because this is interminable. Um, yeah. Yeah and, and yeah. I was I was really worried about what was to come like with those early films I will just like yeah. I will spoil the rest of my uh I'll spoil my reaction to his filmography by saying there is a sharp upswing of my enjoyment as the films go on to the point where I love some of his later work and film yeah. like well film,
2: that's basically my response
0: right that. okay so so you you sort of enjoy each successive one more and more
2: No um I thought I enjoyed La Humanity more than uh, The Life of Jesus, uh, but I loathed. I found the 26 Palms film. 29 Palms, yeah. 29, sorry. I've, I missed. I, I probably didn't get the, Australian, the last three Well, the
0: Australian palms. version cut three of the palms out, so.
2: Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> I found that interminable, yeah. and the ending of that was like, really? So here we are. Okay, um, thank you for that. Yeah. And I found those to be the most unlikable characters in his whole canon and I just really like, you know, I just really, really dislike that film a lot. It's um,
0: annoying, yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I, and Flanders, I thought, had some interesting stuff to say in it, but uh, interesting again in the abstract, not in the specific of it, you know. Mm. I just found the rape stuff in that really problematic um, and kind of in the way it was interminable and I just really struggled with that. So I found, and I hadn't seen those before, I, I sort of, because I was so familiar with his stuff from the last sort of 10 years or so, mm. I, I just assumed that that was kind of and, and fairly consistent in kind of the sort of the more um, magical elements and the f- humor and everything else. I thought that that was kind of all his stuff. Yeah. So when when, I, when you asked me someone, I I kind of um I thought oh, I really like this and I watched some of it recently and I, so that's why I brought up and then going back and watching them, I thought, oh my god. <laughs> I mean, but it was like this. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know why there was this big shift between Flanders and. Um, and uh, outside Satan, um, but well, the anyway. film where
0: I started to enjoy, with well, the film that came in between those was mm. uh which is just well, pretty, I haven't seen that. Right. Well, it's very unlike all of his other films. I think it's the only one set in a city. It's, it takes place in Paris. Ah. It's not mm. the postcard version of Paris. It's a, it's a very different story. I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning that that um, Dumont is an atheist, but he's really interested in religion. And yeah. he's he, he's got this um, this girl who's so Christian that she gets kicked out of a nunnery because her faith is too intense for the nuns. Ah. And then sort of hooks up with these Muslim fundamentalists. And it's, you know, I don't know if I necessarily liked it, but it was the first film without incredibly graphic, ugly sex scenes. It was different to everything he'd done before. Um, it was... It, I started to feel a bit of relief watching this one. I was like, "Okay, this guy I, has at least one more string to his bow. So let let's see where he goes from this from here on." I
2: have to say, I haven't seen it. I I feel very remiss in not having watched that.
0: Well, it's uh, I I think *Horse Satan* outside *Satan*.
2: I did mm-hmm. enjoy
0: that more. That that was that was a relief to see that because it kind of yeah. I I do like the idea of the supernatural. Uh, yeah. In these films, uh, mm. he, he's yeah, basically a vagrant who seems to have this sort of pagan supernatural uh, uh, power mm. of healing. Um, mm. But he's also a murderer and it sort of mm. you know, feels somehow consistent. It's,
2: mm.
1: it's a mysterious yeah, and, film, that one. It's like, you know, the, the supernatural events are just inserted into it quite um, almost randomly.
2: Yes, I like and I really like that aspect of it. And and the thing I liked about it was the way and 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 the and the way he's done it since is just that way he's used those sand dunes,
1: mm.
2: uh, you he know the way he,
1: yeah. he loves
2: that country. But he grew up there. Yeah. And, and I th- I find that really interesting that when you have a body of work like that that is literally the same locations, you know, like it's it's almost literally the same sand dunes in a lot of his his work. I think. Um, yeah, there are a lot of locations that, really that,
0: that sort of. Crop up again, like there is mm. there there is a, uh, a uh, what what do you call it? I don't know if it's a dam, but it's sort of a, a bit of water, and in, yeah, yeah, and in her, oh, and in um, outside Satan, yeah. yeah, the the girl walks across it, and then suddenly it turns mm. up in uh, Malout or Slack Bay in 2016, just a completely yes. different film, and it's such yes. an identifiable and specific location that it, you know I'm wondering mm. if it's deliberate. Where he says, you know, there are some filmmakers who are like. I'm so Manhattan, all my films take place in Manhattan. And he's like, all my films take place in this pond.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I like that. I like that a lot, actually. And that, and that's what I liked. One of the reasons why I liked all those later films, you know, because I saw Slack Bay when it came out. And um, I just really, oh, look, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a bit. but that's right. But, um, but I thought I, I really enjoyed the wet the way everything was heightened in it. Yeah. I like the way he played with gender identity in it. I don't have any idea what he's saying about that. Yeah. But I thought it was really interesting.
1: He sort of takes it in an interesting well, no, in a mm. in a weird direction, the, the character the gender character mm. is, is not treated, I don't know, in a in a way that you'd expect. Mm. No not at all. Mm. Not at
2: all. And the cannibals aren't either. <laughs>
1: It's such a such a comedy. I mean, is, this, I is this the only real comedy in his filmography?
2: Yeah. Well, little little Queen Queen, you could argue, is a I comedy. It's sort yeah. of it's yeah.
0: dark and it's like yeah, the, the TV shows are sort of dark. They're very funny, but I I don't mm. know if I genuinely don't know if you'd call them a comedy or not. This one is a flat out mm. Laurel and Hardy yes. uh, Jacques yes. Tati style. Yes. Uh, and and it's great, Plastic. like Juliette yes. Binoche. And this is like just jumping back to Camille Claudel. Whereas, where where he, um, you know, he'd been working with non-professional actors up until now, just people, you know, people who that he just found wherever open auditions. Camille Claudel, he works with a movie star. He works with Juliette Binoche, and I gotta say, it makes all the difference. You know, it's it's Mm. like she is amazing. In, yes. in that film I find her heartbreaking and, and just mm-hmm. so powerful but then works with her again three years later on this all-out comedy and she goes from playing this incredibly dramatic role to basically doing Eddie in Ab, Ab Fab you know yes. it, it's it's just it's extraordinary and yeah. I think I think it's a, a a testament to both of them that they were able to to sort of pull that 180 between those films
2: yes I I absolutely agree and it's interesting though um one of the things that I found really interesting is when you see um, films like uh, that, The Claudette One or, or Slack Bay, yeah. you notice he's actually his skill set in terms of cinema more. Yeah. It's sort of like you're not drawn to these sort of odd, awkward performances, which I actually don't dislike. I mean, you know, particularly in Little Quin Quin I mean, I think the cast... He lives in this country town where he was born, and everything else. He works at a uh, centre for disabled people as well, doing sort of drama workshops and stuff. and the show's cast by people from there. Mm. all the people in Lil Quinquin I think are disabled. yeah, um, and it's kind of really fascinating, and it it's on this really weird line because I don't think he's making fun of anyone, but it's kind of like just by the very nature of it, mm. it's very hard to know where that sits. And it's, and there's this sort of level of danger in it. Like that is uh, a li- a literal level of danger. Like this sort of people walking around with cars doing stunts and things being thrown around and people <laughs> running into walls, like literally running into yeah, walls. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, it just feels like someone's going to get hurt here. Someone's really going to get hurt here. <laughs> it and, is, uh, I don't know. Yeah. it It
0: is. It is interesting. Uh, I, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. So he, this is, Uh, Little Quinn Quinn was a huge, huge hit in in 2014. I think it was like he pitched this idea, I could have this wrong, but he pitched an idea not thinking that anyone would ever make it and then made it, and then it was such a huge hit, they insisted he make another one. Um, Mm. It's like all of his films, including Slack Bay and Life of Jesus, or maybe not Life of Jesus, but so many of his films always centre around a bunch of people are going missing, they're getting murdered and a detective is on the case, probably not very good at his job. Um, and it's, it's, it's a strange, very specific uh, plot line to apply to everything you're doing from drama to comedy, but uh, it happens again in, 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 uh, in Quinn Quinn. And a few years later, he follows it up with um, coin coin. I think it was called. Uh, yes. with it the same cast.
2: Yeah. yeah. No, it's coin, coin coin and the extra humans.
0: That's it. That's it. And, that is, I have to say, my favourite thing that he's done. I think it is a work of genius. It's like if uh, if, if This is England had a baby with Twin Peaks. It is so yes. funny. The detective who cannot control his facial expressions, who sort of yes. has this bob Cake. I think bob he's got
2: Tourette's. Sorry? I think he's got Tourette's.
0: Yeah, and, and he says, uh, uh, Dumont says he thinks he enhances it when he's on camera, uh, possibly because he's yeah. nervous or whatever. But um, it's just, I, I don't even know how to describe this show. It is, it is really mm. funny. It, it, it's really strange. Um, there are no rules because the supernatural is sort of, it, I, I don't <laughs> want to spoil it, but it, 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 it's well worth checking out. Uh, this is probably yes, a I'd recommend. And,
2: and it's got the most extraordinarily unexpected ending, Yes. Which I want to say what it is. I I think they're very, that whole story cycle of Mm. Quin Quin and uh, Coin Coin is like incredible. Yeah. Yeah, And I think a really interesting view of what's happening in France, well, my understanding of what's happening in France Mm -hmm. with racism, you know, like because because he's kind of interested as a, as a, storyteller or commentator or whatever, in the ideas of faith. I mean, one of the big parts of, I mean, Catholicism is a big part of his storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in Coin Coin, he also has the whole Le Pen sort of you know, right fascists, proto sort of fascist thing going on yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting the way he, he works with that,
1: you know. Mm. Yeah. What do you think he's actually saying about faith and religion in, Camille Claudel, um, there's that brother character. It's sort of, you know, what what's he saying about religion really there?
2: I look, I just sort of think that he, because he's an atheist, I think what he's saying in all his films is that human beings are just animals and we look for meaning. Mm-hmm. And some of that gets exaggerated into ritual, some of it gets exaggerated into uh, sort of blown up into stuff, and some of it is quite. I mean, because I thought some of the, the way was interesting to me, because some of the way he portrayed the the nuns in in mm. uh, in Camille Claudel was he was incredibly sympathetic to them mm. in a way that he hasn't been to religious figures in most of his other films, including including Quinquin and um, Coinkin. You know. Yeah. And I find that really interesting. I I thought that was a really interesting film and I wasn't looking forward to seeing it. I just Mm. thought it's kind of because it's kind of out of his canon in a way, but I kind of found it because she's so great, Mm. um, I just really was seduced by it. I found it fabulous.
1: It really is like you're stuck in an asylum with with her. Yeah, um, it was
2: heartbreaking.
1: Yeah.
0: I think that's a really interesting question though, about what he is trying to say with religion. I think that kind of applies yep. to all of, all, all of his messages. Cause you know, he does portray the, the North of France, these, you know, where he comes from this place that he clearly loves as being incredibly racist. Like main characters are generally really racist. And it, it's, <laughs> I don't know if they necessarily get admonished by the film for this attitude, but it seems to be a fairly mm. common theme, and yes. I guess he's presenting it as quite matter of fact, without drawing a conclusion. You know, the, the the temptation of the filmmaker to to sort of have this morality, and maybe he approaches religion the same way. He's obviously, you know, as we said, he's an atheist who's preoccupied with religion because there's a, you know, there's a lot of religion. Even his first film, which doesn't really touch on religion, is called The Life of Jesus. So he's he, mm. you know, right through to his most recent film, which is the best uh what john waters called the best film he saw in 2018 which was jeanette uh the child joan joan of arc which Mm. is insane i have i've i it's basically just if you haven't seen it it's a musical if it was made by someone who has never seen a musical but read about what they are in books if there's a lot of dialogue like all of his films but people just sort of stand there singing and swaying slightly. It basically <laughs> takes place in one location. Again, people suspended in midair at random points. It makes a little more sense because mm. you know, Joan of Arc. Um, but then head, <laughs> a headbanging metal musical set in the 1400s. it
2: I mm. don't
1: know
0: if it works, but I'm so into it. It's insane.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, you
1: making want to see it, Lee.
2: <laughs> <laughs> look, I, I don't know if it works, but the thing that's interesting about that is it's actually part of it. It's actually a play. Mm. You know that he just took, and then the uh, the plays in verse. Okay. So he worked with a heavy metal composer um, called calls himself Gollum or something, and uh, and then they turned it in turned these these um, the, these verse parts of the play into songs, which right. then became the film. And he's in. Uh, shooting as we speak the second part of the play the play's got three parts the childhood the battles, and then the trial. And I think he's going to make a trilogy. I was wondering <laughs> about that because I saw he was shooting the second part.
0: I was wondering if there was going to yes. be a third down the... Yeah, I think okay. he's
2: doing all three parts of the play. And apparently the play went for like five or six hours, <laughs> which I just can't imagine what that would have been like. But, um, but yeah, no, so... But I have to say, I loved the thing... I, one of the things I loved in the play was when they brought the uncle in who was rapping. Yes. And you're doing any had incredibly awkward dancing, and I thought that was really interesting because it's kind of like 90% of the dialogue is explicitly about, or the dialogue or the singing or whatever you call it or rapping, is explicitly about faith and whether faith is real, whether faith in God who lets you down is a waste of effort. You know, like it's all about that, but it's kind of all these circular songs. They don't resolve and there's no kind of movement forward, and then she just decides, oh, well, I've got to go fight the French. Oh, I've got to go fight the English. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, okay, all right, God says so, or I better do that, you know. And there's these fabulous tableaus of, of, like, that look like a bad version of voguing where people are sort of striking these poses, and it's like – but it's in these sand dunes and they're just people he's found <laughs> on the street to be these, to be these sort of – personifications of saints from like the 1400s. Yeah, yeah. And it's just – and he's kind of – play, and then they just suddenly stop and then there's this heavy metal music starts, and they just do headbanging for yeah, like yeah. two or three minutes, <laughs> stomping around on the dunes and they're kind of awkward and uncomfortable looking. I don't know. It's kind of mesmerising. Who is it's this incredible. filmmaker? What, how
0: does – who is this guy? He goes from being this like incredibly yeah. depressing Realist, grim mm. filmmaker I get to this guy who does is just making the craziest, craziest films, and
2: yes. I, yeah, yeah. Well, I find him fascinating, and 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 I have to say, in the same way, we we're talking about Steven Soderbergh before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting because Steven Soderbergh changes his subject matter around a lot, um, mm. but he's always interested in exploring the medium and and the technology and everything else. But this guy is kind of like has had this sort of progression. I think you can sort of see the progression of his work mm-hmm. um, starting out with, I think, I suspect a very strong manifesto, you know, on like this is what I'm going to do and if and it's kind of like and it's going to be slow and it's going to be this and it's going to be brutal and it's going to be there's going to be no hope and there's going to you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And incrementally he's become much more stylized and much more odd, you know, which I think yeah, is fascinating. Yeah. I find it absolutely fascinating.
1: And as a filmmaker, David, um, what inspirations or lessons, if any, have you taken from Dumont?
2: Well, look, I mean, it's kind of like it's it is that thing. I mean, like I, I most of my scripts had been, you know, like like I have a sort of a group of my films you could probably put together as being culturally in the same world you know they have the same sort of characters you know like idiot box and mullet and prime mover and they're kind of about ideas of masculinity and exploring that and the idea of like people performing performative nature of being a man you know like mm. or the idea that you have to be a man and you it's a performative process and uh, and and i kind of would have loved to have been able to keep exploring that i mean mm. that's kind of what i would have like to do but in a country like Australia, you just can't, you know, mm. it's just not, you know, like there's kind of a, there's this sort of weird, well, it's not weird at all. It's like this process of like, um, okay, we're going to give you a go and then if the Americans want to give you more money, uh, great, and if they don't, next, who's next? And that's mm. kind of that's mm. the process yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, I saw this study that Australia has the worst tradition of like people – only ever making
1: making their second films. Yeah, Yeah. which I think is
2: terrible because it's a, look, I think it's problematic. And I think, you know, like there's lots of issues with gender and a whole lot of other things going on in Australia. But I also think there's no acknowledgement of the fact that if you look go back and you look at Bergman or or Fellini or whatever, if you look at their first films, they're pretty ordinary, I think, Mm. you know, and it takes a while. It's actually a complicated thing to do to make a film. Mm. And it takes you a long time to actually be good at it. It's a lot of skill sets. I mean, like my first film, Greenkeeping, led a lot to be desired. But a lot of people, you're not everyone, but a lot of people liked my second film. So I just think that it's a real problem. And I would love it if we could sort of have people build in Australia, yeah. you know, like go on. I mean, the thing is, I probably would be interested as a filmmaker in taking from both uh, Soderbergh and uh, Br- good old Bruno mm. in that, I mean, a lot of the thematic stuff from Bruno interests me in the way he pursues that, but I'm also interested in that kind of like, oh, I'm just going to get my phone and I'm going to get some people and we're going to go make a film. You know, like I really like that as conceptually as, a, as um, you know, it's like as part of the thing that, is a really big part of the Australian film industry is all these people who are really angry that the government won't give them money. Yeah. And I kind of think that that's kind of like inevitable that because there's such a small amount of money and the nature of the industry is about development more than it is about maintaining an industry, which is understandable as well. And I just think we just have to, as if we want to be storytellers and stuff, go, okay, well, what's another model? Mm. And if the model is iPhones, then so be it.
0: And if you keep funding people past the first film, then you end up with films like Slack Bay and CoinCoin. Coin. So there's a...
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I honestly think that. I think that if you, you you won't always do that, but you will find people's work. You know, you, you you have to, I think you have to go, okay, You or, or, or maybe find another way to get it, Get them more developed before their first film, mm. you know, um, so that you can actually see what they're on about. Because often that first film is the real film school for people, yeah. is the way that you learn how to make films, you yeah. know. And yeah. I guess if you looked at, uh, you know, Life of Jesus. <laughs> <you know? laughs>
0: You wouldn't want to stop with that one, you know. You wouldn't want no. you to say, oh, I know what his whole deal is." No, yeah, exactly. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the show, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure to have you on. It's been my pleasure, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Bye bye.